Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Deciding what treatments are ordinary or extraordinary can be a daunting task, and it often appears as if the readily available examples do not fit our specific circumstances as we grapple to answer questions like, what is ordinary care? How important are personal autonomy and quality of life? How far must you go to extend life? And when do you stop intervening and allow someone to die in peace? To answer these and other questions, we are joined by Dr. John D. Camillo, one of our staff ethicists at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Thank you very much for coming on the show, John. My pleasure, Phil. So a good place to begin would be with a brief explanation of extraordinary and ordinary care. Uh, Would you briefly describe these two concepts? Sure, absolutely. Uh, So the terms ordinary and extraordinary uh, are basically a long-standing part of the Church's tradition on these kinds of questions. Uh, In more recent times, uh, as of about 1980, uh, there was the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith put out a document called Jura et Bona, uh, which is also known as the Declaration on Euthanasia in English. In this document, uh, they basically uh, suggest or, or note that the terms proportionate and disproportionate might be a little bit more helpful um, in virtue of many of the changes that have been happening with medical technology that have made it a little bit more difficult to understand, um, let's say intuitively understand what we mean by ordinary and extraordinary. So basically, uh, proportionate is the equivalent of ordinary and disproportionate is the equivalent of extraordinary. So an extraordinary treatment or a disproportionate treatment uh, is one that, in the patient's judgment, uh, does not offer a reasonable hope of benefit or it entails some excessive burden, Uh, whereas an ordinary or a proportionate treatment uh, is one that uh, does offer a reasonable hope of benefit uh, and does not entail an excessive burden. What kind of burdens specifically uh, are included in this? Well, burden is a very broad term, uh, and and deliberately so, because it it basically could cover any number of uh, considerations from the perspective of the patient, but they have to be connected in some way to the treatment itself that is in question. Uh, So a burden could be, for example, an excessive expense, uh, a burden could be excessive pain. Uh, it could be some kind of um, extreme or intense fear or repugnance with respect to the procedure or the treatment that's being proposed. Um, it could be also uh, even considerations about, for example, the uh, duration of the treatment regimen and the expected recovery thereafter, uh, even considerations about uh, uh, ultimately, what kinds of um, challenges this person is going to have to go through, including side effects and so forth, uh, through whatever process the treatment entails. You mentioned 
that technology has made it more difficult to determine, in some cases, the difference between proportionate and disproportionate measures. Uh, would you explain this in a little more depth, how technology has done this? Absolutely. So technology basically, particularly around, let's say, the 1950s or so, uh, when we had the advent of the ventilator, uh, it was obviously around in, in certain more uh, rudimentary forms before that, and technology was advancing. It became basically uh, more commonplace, uh, particularly in the context of the use of anesthesia and so forth during surgeries uh, in that rough time period of, let's say, the 1950s. Uh, and this obviously changes the game in, in a, a broad sense with respect to questions about um, how uh, long one might be able to prolong an individual's life, uh, because aside from a temporary use in a surgical context, uh, the ventilator could now also be utilized to, in a sense, uh, supplement or supplant even the functioning of the individual's uh, respiratory uh, abilities um, for uh, during at a time when otherwise the individual might be declared dead by the cardiopulmonary criteria. So you start getting into questions about even uh, considerations of when is the person actually dead. Uh, you start you have the the Harvard criteria that are developed with respect to so-called irreversible coma or what would come to be called brain death. Uh, so you have a lot of this happening in the 1950s and, and 60s. Uh, you have Pius XII, uh, who is giving several addresses in the 1950s on topics relating to uh, extraordinary means of treatment. And so the, the issues basically become, hey, you know, as technology advances, we are now able to uh, do much, much more than was ever previously thought possible uh, in terms of uh, aiding the functions or even supplanting in some sense the functions of the body itself uh, and able to, uh, in so doing, uh, extend life uh, much longer than we could before. And so uh, this is naturally going to raise questions about, well, how much do we have to do here? How far do we have to go? Uh, and the sort of traditional understandings or notions about uh, ordinary and extraordinary means of treatment uh, come into question. You mentioned that the ventilator can supplant or replace a an organ function. Could you go into detail a little bit of detail about the difference between assisting a, a vital function and replacing a vital function, and why that's important to this discussion? Uh, sure. Uh, now, I mean, I would say that the the question about assisting versus replacing. Uh, it, it may be helpful in some cases. I wouldn't say that it's actually a fundamental distinction uh, with respect to the ethics of when a particular intervention is um, ordinary or extraordinary, uh, because let's say, for example, you could have uh, with something like a ventilator or various breathing assist devices, um, you can have a, a certain level of assistance to breathing um, which would, the individual is capable of breathing on his or her own, but in a limited way or perhaps, perhaps with a minimal amount of oxygen exchange, et cetera. So they could have a device that would uh, increase the, the functionality, let's say, of the breathing they're already doing. 
And then even with the ventilator itself, uh, you could have uh, different levels of uh, capacity of that individual to breathe on his or her own. So sometimes they talk about uh, breathing over the vent, which would be a situation where the person is actually breathing um, to uh, on his or her own, and the ventilator is assisting, but uh, it's not been entirely replaced uh, by the ventilator, whereas uh, a person who's become entirely ventilator dependent would be totally incapable of breathing on his or her own if we were to disconnect that ventilator. Um, and so it, while it certainly that helps accentuate some of the ethical questions, for example, when you know with certainty the person won't be able to breathe if you turn it off versus being able to breathe to some limited extent, uh, it doesn't actually give us uh, a a, a finally or ultimately helpful distinction as to whether the treatment is ordinary or extraordinary. Because you could even have a total organ, let's say, replacement, something like an artificial heart uh, versus uh, something as simple as a pacemaker. So you could, let's say, if you were to totally replace the heart with an artificial heart or, or some kind of mechanical device uh, that substitutes for the heart, you know, this would be a, a true replacement uh, of not just function but also the organ itself. Um, and uh, that, however, doesn't tell us automatically that this is an extraordinary treatment or not. Um, we, we actually have to get into other uh, un uh, details about what we mean by ordinary uh, and extraordinary in order to, to make those assessments. Okay, so I guess just to keep falling down this rabbit hole, what are some other, what are some of those other considerations that you need to think about? Right. So it actually goes back to the basic uh, difference or of the definitions that I mentioned before in terms of um, a treatment is ordinary or proportionate uh, when it offers a reasonable hope of benefit uh, and it does not entail an excessive burden. So you could have something that is, uh, let's say, very, very uh, costly. You could have something that um, is going to drastically change the way that this person's life uh, will be uh, experienced from this point forward uh, for a temporary or an indefinite period of time, like, for example, going on a ventilator, um, depending on what the prognosis is. Um, but uh, what, what has to be under, uh, determined, basically, is ultimately, do the expected benefits of the ventilator uh, outweigh the expected burdens of the ventilator in the patient's judgment. And the answer to that question uh, is what will tell us whether it's ordinary or extraordinary. So if the answer is uh, yes, the benefits will outweigh the burdens, then this is ordinary, proportionate, and morally obligatory. And if the answer is no, that the uh, benefits will not outweigh the burdens, uh, then, the, then the answer is we're dealing with an extraordinary or disproportionate treatment. And so uh, two different individuals could even come to different conclusions uh, about the same basic treatment plan, let's say, uh, with regard to its proportionality, uh, depending on the particulars of their own circumstances and their own judgments. You mentioned right there the own patient's judgment. So how do quality of life judgments like how does the patient feel about these requirements or about the side effects being burdensome or loathsome, 
how legitimate are these considerations and in what context do they need to be considered? How much weight do they carry? Yeah, great question. So the the quality of life terminology is always a little bit, um, can be ambiguous and, and problematic. So I'm going to say a word about that in a minute. But um, before before I say speak to that specifically, I do want to answer in general terms the question, which gets to, uh, yes, when the patient is making a judgment um, about the particular uh, plan of treatment or, or proposed treatment, um, it is entirely appropriate for that individual to be uh, taking into account uh, his or her own um, assessments, but it's not a purely subjective assessment of just whatever I want. Um, it has to start with some kind of solid rational foundation. So when we talk about um, what is the patient's judgment with respect to benefits and burdens, well, that patient needs to be able to give a proper informed consent, so they have to be properly informed, so they need to get appropriate medical information about what the risks are, uh, what the expected side effects are. Uh, they need to have a clear understanding of what the alternatives are, um, including no treatment at all, whether it's a different treatment or an experimental treatment, or again, no treatment at all. I mean, they have to have the understanding of uh, what are the different scenarios here uh, and what are the different risks, side effects, again, burdens, to use the broader moral terminology, uh, that might be associated with any of these. But that foundation has to be the medical input, a medical expertise and, and a medical uh, opinion of sorts uh, based on or, or uh, including and built upon those facts, medical facts that the patient needs to be able to understand. Uh, so they shouldn't be, in other words, um, basing a moral judgment of proportionality uh, simply on uh, a basic impression or reaction uh, to the notion that, uh, well, you could have this uh, radical surgery done here and sort of the impression or reaction is, oh, no, radical surgery, I don't want that. You know, it, it has to be uh, objectively grounded in understanding what are the risks, uh, what are the benefits if we do go through with this. Uh, and then once the patient is able to understand those aspects, then we can say that they're uh, able to give informed consent and that their decision, their subjective judgment about the proportion between uh, the burdens and the benefits uh, will have that rational and objective uh, foundation in place uh, and not just be a, a simple um, emotional reaction uh, to perhaps an, an, a poorly understood um, reality of treatment. Uh, and so actually, so then to, to talk just to the quality of life term for a second. Um, so that term quality of life is always uh, grounds, grounds for confusion because it's oftentimes used uh, as a sort of way of saying, well, if, I'm going, if I have a poor quality of life, then I shouldn't live anymore. And so the, the whole quality of life uh, approach that, let's say, reduces these judgments of uh, proportionality of treatment to merely a quality of life assessment, that's problematic. In other words, th then we're reducing the value of life uh, to what I'm able to do what our abilities are. And if I'm not able to accomplish certain human functions, if I can't get out of bed, if I can't um, you know, urinate on my own uh, or whatever the case is, then suddenly my quality of life 
uh, is poor, and therefore it becomes the bridge to uh, euthanasia or uh, assisted suicide of some sort, uh, and those are obviously morally problematic. Uh, however, the fact that there's a danger or risk of reducing things to quality of life uh, doesn't mean that there's no place for uh, weighing the uh, results or outcomes that are expected from an operation. So if I uh, am a, a surgery is being proposed, uh, I can legitimately consider, well, what state will I be in after the surgery? You know, doctor, what do you expect me to be able to do after this surgery? Uh, and I can, at the time I'm deciding about the surgery, consider, well, you know, we don't ever expect you to be able to walk again, uh, but this, this, and, and the other, you know, from, from the medical standpoint. And so you can uh, legitimately say, oh, my goodness, well, I don't know if it's going to be worth the burdens of the surgery, whatever those are, and the burdens of, uh, let's say, if there's some kind of physical therapy that follows, uh, and let's say the person is uh, of a certain age, maybe they're older, they're they're um, very frail at this point physically, even if they're not necessarily older, um, and so there's there's really not uh, a likelihood of a long-term difference uh, in outcomes uh, between doing the surgery or not doing it, but I'm being exposed to a great risk in this surgery, and I also know I'm not going to walk again, let's say, and I might be able to take those factors into account and say, okay, well, the burdens of this radical surgery um, are greater than the benefits I get from it, but I might go ahead and do it if I knew I'd be able to walk again for the last few months of my life. I don't know. You know, those are hypotheticals, um, and obviously any case requires a great deal more information from the medical side, um, but the, the point is we can consider the results of treatment uh, and what those are expected to be as part of our proportionality assessment um, for undergoing the treatment, but we can't simply say, well, because I am unable to do this or that right now, therefore I should die. And that's where we get into the problematic territory and the ways in which quality of life is often uh, unfortunately invoked in our current uh, cultural and, and medical context. Uh, moving on, um, in uh, Ethical Issues in End-of-Life Geriatric Care, Mark Clarefield says that dying is considered more than a medical crisis. How, how does this idea affect or weigh in on when do you just stop intervening and allow a patient to die in peace? I mean, once you've determined, you know, that something is ordinary, extraordinary, at which point do you just focus on, say, the spiritual or psychological aspects of uh, the patient's being, of, uh, of the idea of the whole person? Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's a great reminder uh, because uh, it is our, our tendency nowadays to try to um, treat everything, particularly in our healthcare context, as a strictly uh, medical issue uh, with uh, uh, that kind of reductive understanding that we have to fix the problem. You know, the, the biological, the, um, the problem with the body has to be fixed, whatever that is. We need to prolong life. Um, and however we can do that technically, technologically, um, is what we're always focused on. Uh, but absolutely, 
and the church has always been clear in teaching this, of course, that the emphasis uh, is and should be on an accompaniment of that patient, uh, including and and foremost, I would say, uh, a spiritual care for that person, uh, always keeping in mind the spiritual good of the individual. Uh, and And so there is no question that uh, we are not held to uh, any and every technological means of prolonging life, according to church teaching, uh, precisely because uh, we acknowledge and understand and accept that uh, death is an inevitable uh, outcome for all of us. Uh, and, uh, and so this is also something we have to understand and to accept as part of the mystery of our existence and where we are in terms of uh, God's plan. And so when our time comes, we also have to have the humility and the willingness to understand and to accept uh, that our death is uh, is coming and that um, we also should be preparing for this at every point in our life, of course, particularly at the at the hour as the hour of death approaches uh, to ensure that our uh, life in in the afterlife uh, will will be one that is um, well prepared for. Uh, and and that hopefully will uh, include our ultimate salvation. Uh, and so we definitely don't want to treat dying simply as a medical crisis, which would also lead to sort of a, a giving up attitude, which we do in, often encounter when it comes to the point where we know we don't have the answer to this crisis uh, technologically anymore. We see there's nothing to do, and it's like, well, we throw our hands up in the air. And it's like, okay, that's it. We did everything we could. And, and there's not that kind of accompaniment or that kind of understanding of uh, the importance of this moment uh, in the life of the human person, which is not the end of everything, uh, but rather the beginning of, of something new uh, as, um, as death comes uh, to us all. All right, so we've been talking a lot about determining the difference between a treatment that might be ordinary or a treatment that might be extraordinary. Now, what enters into this conversation quite often are issues like food and water, which the church says are ordinary care, not treatment. Why, why, why are they deemed care and not treatment and consequently not something that can be deemed extraordinary? So they are, the church would say and, and has said clearly, in principle, considered uh, ordinary and proportionate. Um, they are always to be considered basic care, uh, let's say a basic human care or minimal care, um, but there are a few important distinctions here. So food and water, in other words, nourishment for the body, are always considered to be uh, a, a human care for another, because they are those most basic and foundational um, elements of human existence. They're not, uh, strictly speaking, a medical act or treatment for a pathology uh, in that kind of technical sense. Uh, they are what all of us need to sustain our life. Uh, and again, in that sense, uh, one would say a very, very basic uh, and simply human form of caring for one another as as opposed to strictly medical uh, intervention. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there is uh, no room for assessments of proportionality when it comes to 
delivering food and water, particularly as we know, uh, through um, medically assisted uh, interventions or devices. So we have things like feeding tubes, whether it's uh, the PEG tube that might be surgically inserted into the stomach, uh, or a nasogastric tube, uh, or whatever, or an IV. So we have different uh, modes of delivering food and water, which would certainly involve medical acts. Uh, and so there is a place for assessing the proportionality of those kinds of, uh, let's say, modes of delivery. Uh, and also, we should, we should be clear that um, this notion about being in principle ordinary and proportionate, even with respect to food and water themselves, is important because in principle means that there might be exceptions in practice. Uh, it's sort of an in general is the understanding of that terminology of, of in principle. So our starting point should be the assumption that they're ordinary and proportionate because the finality of food and water is simply nourishment, again, not something medical. However, uh, it could be the case that because of some pathology in the body, um, uh, some problems with the functions of the organs and so forth, it might be that the food and water are unable to be absorbed or assimilated by the body. Uh, and if we're unable to correct that situation, uh, then clearly continuing to provide the food and the water would not be an ordinary or proportionate thing to do uh, because we could actually be causing harm uh, to the person by, for example, uh, overloading the body with hydration uh, when the kidneys are unable to process, filter, and excrete uh, the, um, that fluid content from the body. And then you could end up having uh, a buildup of fluid in the body that's uh, harmful to the individual. So certainly that would not be something that's uh, ordinary and proportionate and certainly not morally required in that sense. So we can't say that there's an absolute obligation to always provide food and water, uh, but we do preserve this basic principle that uh, as our first approach or our first response should be, we understand that the finality of food and water isn't medical, it's not a treatment. Um, and so as long as it's achieving its finality of nourishing the body, uh, it should be given. Uh, and in the measure in which it can be assimilated by the body. So again, you know, maybe there's an issue with the amount. Uh, obviously, uh, when people are able to take food orally, uh, they could have a greater or lesser uh, appetite and eat more or less uh, different times or um, even just based on different body constitutions. So the amount of food and water we provide is also something that can be subject to a legitimate assessment of what's this person's body able to handle here. And it may be less uh, than what the individual was able to take in 10 years before or when they were not sick and so forth. Um, so that would be the, the basic overview of this question of nutrition and hydration. Um, and, and if I could summarize in just that there's basically um, when the person is not able to take food orally, uh, there, there are basically three situations in which we would not be required to provide it because otherwise we should. And those three situations where we're not required to provide it is when, again, first of all, they're not able to assimilate or absorb the food, uh, and so therefore it's not achieving its finality. Uh, second of all, if there's a, a problem with the means of delivery uh, that could be causing complications or serious harm to the individual, uh, such as problems with the, the insertion of the IV or at the site of the uh, surgical tube insertion, 
that might be recurring infections or serious issues of this sort. Uh, and it could also, in this second area, be something uh, of burdens associated with uh, something like um, the uh, excessive amounts of food or water in the body that are, again, causing problems to the body itself. And then finally, we're not required to provide assisted nutrition and hydration uh, if death is truly imminent in the sense that uh, our withholding of food and water at that point would really do nothing uh, or, or would make little difference to uh, that the length of life of this individual. So our continuing to provide it, this would often be the case with an underlying terminal condition or pathology that is progressive. Uh, and which is at the point where, uh, for example, with a cancer, to the point where uh, there's really nothing that's going to change the, the course of this underlying condition at this point, and the individual might be expected to pass um, within hours to a day or two, uh, and there may not be at that stage any significant difference as to whether we do or do not provide the nutrition and hydration. Uh, we might we may need to continue it anyway because of uh, some kind of um, comfort that it would provide, uh, but the point is that it would not affect uh, the uh, cause of the patient's death. The patient's going to die from the cancer, not from starvation and dehydration, which would be the case if we withheld it when there's nothing else problematic going on, uh, such as a persistent vegetative state or something to that effect, uh, where the person has no issues uh, other than that they're minimally conscious or, or unresponsive, um, but if we withhold the food and water, then they're actually going to die from starvation or dehydration. That's obviously a, the, the serious issue uh, that we want to be aware of. So just to tie, tie everything up, ultimately, a patient's decision to withdraw or withhold treatment comes down to moral certitude in their choice. Would you explain this concept and how it uh, applies to healthcare decision making? Sure, as best I can. Now, moral certitude uh, is obviously key to any moral decision making. Um, and what distinguishes it, uh, basically, the reason we talk about moral certitude is to be clear uh, that we do not, in the moral life, really ever have absolute certitude when it comes to. Uh, questions of um, physical events uh, that in the future. In other words, we don't always know exactly uh, what is sure to happen um, or even what has already happened in some cases, and we need to make some kind of judgment about how we're going to act um, to the best that we can when we don't have necessarily the time or the ability um, or even the capacity to know with 100% certitude, absolute certitude, um, all of the uh, foundational criteria or elements for our decision. So basically, if I have to uh, make a decision about how I'm driving, for example, uh, I don't have the clairvoyance to see uh, every single driver vehicle on the road, every possible hazard and every place um, where there may be, a, let's say, a child playing or where there may be um, a cat crossing the road. Uh, I have to do the best that I can do uh, to drive prudently uh, and to uh, assess within my abilities um, all of those kinds of 
dangers, all of those kinds of considerations uh, that will enable me to decide whether I should accelerate, whether I should brake, um, and, and so forth. So I need to be aware of the traffic signals and so on. And I have to be looking for them. But I might miss something. Uh, this is unfortunately a possibility in some cases um, where we are doing the best that we can reasonably be expected to do, uh, but there's something that we still miss, um, which, uh, which would mean that from the moral standpoint, we may not be at fault. We may not be culpable uh, for something that happens. Um, let's say, for example, if there's an accident, a uh, vehicle that pulls out unexpectedly uh, hidden behind some bush that we were cautiously approaching, but they pulled out rapidly and, and very um, uh, imprudently. And, and so now there's an accident for which we may not be culpable. So the moral certitude element is I'm morally certain in driving my vehicle uh, that there's not, um, that I'm not going to cause an accident here. Um, it may be that, in fact, I end up doing so. Moral certitude is the exclusion of a well-founded or reasonable doubt, but it does admit the absolute possibility of the contrary. So that's uh, what Pius XII, how he defined it in 1942. Uh, and John Paul II uh, tells us explicitly that it's the necessary and sufficient basis for an ethically correct course of action. And so when we have to take into account all of the circumstances we're looking at for our decision about end-of-life care, um, well, we have to get the doctor's input, we need the, doc the experts to weigh in, uh, get a picture of those medical facts, but of course it's possible that some of those facts may not be the, the exact accurate description of, of the reality, not because uh, somebody's lying to us, but because there's an inevitable degree of uncertainty in some of the prognoses uh, and perhaps even in the diagnosis. And so we have to, each person involved has to be doing the best they can in due diligence uh, to give the best reasonable information and to make the best reasonable decision. Uh, and we can't be held from a moral accountability standpoint. Um, certainly God does not judge us in terms of what the actual reality ultimately was, but rather um, how we were able to best judge uh, with our human limitations, um, having done due diligence and made a decision as a result. And that's why that definition of the necessary and sufficient basis for an ethically correct course of action uh, is, is a very good way of defining moral certitude. So we try to uh, make the assessment, uh, get all the information that we can reasonably have, we can make the decision, perhaps declining a particular treatment, which, hey, if we had gone through with it, maybe it would have saved our life and everything would have been great and perfect, but we were uh, it was legitimate to have declined it based on the information that we had available to us uh, and the best that human knowledge and, and expertise uh, in our circumstances would admit. Uh, so, so again, we're not held to the standard of what might have been, um, but what that uh, most reasonable understanding based on due diligence was. Well, thank you, John, for your insights into uh, the nuances of this very important decision that all of us have to make at some point in life. And thanks a lot for coming on the program. Sure, my pleasure. More information about end-of-life decision-making can be found in the NCBC's Catholic Guide to End-of-Life Decisions. You can also visit our website, 
ncbcenter.org and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Phil Cerrone. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.